0: Ruth Wilson Gilmore reminds us that abolition is about presence, not absence. It's about building life-affirming institutions. You are listening to Race Capital with me, Kalia Harris. And this week, we are talking about mutual aid with Yaya Ogaldez of Richmond Mutual Aid and Sarandon Elliott of UVA Mutual Aid. Today's conversation explores the work of building life-affirming institutions on Monacan and Minahoic land, or so-called Charlottesville, and here at home in the fallen capital of the Confederacy. We are building as we burn, fostering healthy, sustainable mutual aid ecosystems in our communities. The practice of mutual aid extends beyond the bounds of one person or one organization alone. We know the practice of mutual aid has kept so many of us and our predecessors alive, despite the systems and mechanisms of death that seek to hunt us down, end our lives, and that of our descendants. So for today's episode, we will kick it off with a quick race capital reframe, looking at local, national, and international headlines, before hopping into my conversation with Yaya and Sarandon. This is Race Capital, on W-R-I-R-L-P 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Stay tuned.
1: You're listening to the Race Capital Reframe with Chelsea Higgs-Wise,
0: Kalia Harris,
1: and Nomi Isaac on the week of Wednesday, December 8th, 2021. And it's the last one of the year, y'all. Let's get right into local news.
0: As of December 1st, 2021, the Marcus Alert legislation took effect in Virginia. Currently, five localities across the state, including Richmond, are adopting the system, which creates a co-response model to bring in mental health professionals with police to respond to people experiencing mental health crises. As a result of the legislation, calls with, quote, lower threats may be referred to regional crisis call centers or the 988 suicide hotline, which will be launched in 2022. The Marcus Alert was named after Marcus David Peters, who was killed by police while experiencing a mental health crisis. When the bill was ceremoniously signed by the governor last year, Princess Blanding, Marcus's sister, and former candidate for VA governor, spoke out about the bill.
2: Please take a moment to uh, pat yourselves on the back for doing exactly what this racist, corrupt system, and broken, may I also add, expected you all to do. Make the Marcus Alert bill a watered-down, ineffective bill. That will continue to ensure that having a mental health crisis results in a death sentence marcus david peters along with so many others deserves help not death
1: yeah princess's comments then were really strong because we did pass this quote-unquote historic bill but we are still having police respond as you mentioned this is a co-response model and so uniformed police are coming there are some advocates that are saying that they don't need to be uniformed. Many of us are saying that they don't need to be coming at all. It's going to be really interesting what the data shows of how many of these calls do end up in police presence and are not able to be handled at the lower tiers and what that means as far as more supports at that level, not more cops. And I'm hoping that is a conversation we'll be able to have as we review these pilots.
0: And I'll just be honest, I went to a few of the Richmond stakeholder meetings, and it was full of cops. It was full of cops and justice center people and a couple community folks that were asking critical questions. And I stopped attending those meetings because it was like having all of the law enforcement on Zoom in my room, right? And it was very uncomfortable, but it didn't feel like our voices were necessarily, the concerns that we were being
3: heard could even be addressed because of the way that the bill was legislated. I was definitely really proud of Princess Blending for just having the goal really to go up there and call them out on the BS. I think that is really powerful that moment. And I invite anyone who hasn't seen the video to go look it up because they got roasted, y'all.
1: And to be honest. If anybody remembers what happened in the legislative process, they deserve that because Princess Blanding worked really hard on a bill. And as soon as it got proposed, it got engrossed into this other bill, which is what we're looking at, that had the co-response model. But they just decided to keep the name. So this is a really important piece that Princess Blanding is keeping going as we review to see what's happening. All right. So here's a little change of pace. Last week, Virginia's largest justice-centered cannabis conference brought together advocates, community members, and all those interested in equity for the inaugural Joint Canna Justice Conference, put on by Marijuana Justice, Rise for Youth, Justice Forward, and Virginia Student Power Network. This virtual conference had 16 sessions, two keynotes, and included Andrea Ritchie and Shelly, formerly known as DROM. We are so excited to report on the success of this conference, and to have been a part of the process. To catch up on our coverage of the fight to legalize it right in Virginia, tune in to our Referb Revolution series. And of course, y'all, if you missed out on the Canada Justice Conference, Don't worry. The recordings will be made public early next year and the dates for next year's conference have already been announced. So mark your calendars, December 8th through the 10th, 2022. And you can also visit canadjustice.org to see the conference lineup that we have. So Kalia and Chelsea, uh, y'all
3: obviously had a huge hand in helping facilitate this conference. Thank you. I wanted to know if y'all had any like highlights from the discussions uh, that we
1: Well, I know we are taking off our race capital hats really quickly to discuss the conference. And I just want to say that I'm really blown away to have been able to I've brought in so many of my networks from across the nation, the East Coast, right here at home to be part of this very first event that was huge, y'all. And we're just so proud to really talk about justice, reparations. And I'm going to be honest, y'all, I don't see people coming together to talk about cannabis and liberation in this way. It's usually very much centered on industry. So I'm just really proud of us, to be honest.
0: So proud of us. And it was just really cool to hear the connections of the war on drugs, abolition, land and land back. There were so many different connections that were made through the sessions that has me still reflecting now. And I'm really excited to keep digging in with all the people that we met virtually.
3: Yeah. And I think what strikes me as really unique about this conference and just the way that marijuana justice operates generally is the emphasis that is put on that youth liberation piece. I got to listen to Valerie Slater speak a little bit about it. And I think like it is something in the larger discussion that I often see get left behind is the youth. And like, especially in Virginia, as marijuana justice is always talking about the way that it's especially hyper criminalizing kids, right? Like, so it's just so important to see that, yeah, Black youth are getting uplifted in this conversation because I really don't see that online or in even in person with conversations that I have with people.
1: Well, not to be the the data person here, but if we're not doing that in marijuana, what are we doing? We know that the young people were the most disproportionately impacted. Being young and Black made you a target for marijuana in the so-called Commonwealth. So if we're not doing this, we're not doing this right. And I really hope that people are seeing this and hoping that they can model what we're doing and listening to these young folks, listening to Valerie Slater talk about what these young folks are doing and what we deserve. So I'm, I'm just really excited that, that this is really getting resourced Honestly y'all, and that we were able to I, I counted, and we paid 13 people to work on this for weeks and pull this off, so I was really also just proud of that.
3: Moving on into other local news. Governor Northam announced yesterday that his final budget proposal includes more than 223 million dollars in new money for guess what, y'all, state troopers, correctional officers, deputies, sheriffs, and regional jail officials including raising the starting salaries for new state troopers by almost 8% and 25% for new corrections officers. Northam's two-year budget proposal will have to be approved by the General Assembly in the upcoming months. Over the last year, Virginia legislators have given multiple raises to law enforcement, so... I mean, I don't really understand what dire need that they, they have um, for extra money when we know that so much of the COVID relief funds have gone to the police already. It's just like a slap in the face to the community.
0: Exactly. And what we do see is that it doesn't matter, Democrat, Republican. One thing that they are locked in arms about is funding the police. And there should just be no confusion here that the Virginia power structure has been rejecting the calls to defund the police. And so that is for us to understand and kind of strategize around that as we're formulating our campaigns and demands over the next year is seeing exactly how much investment they've put into the state and the police just in this year alone.
3: And like reframing it in our heads to understand that they are actually during this time, during a pandemic, during mass like housing insecurity, during mass food insecurity, they're literally funding our debts, because we know the studies have already come out, you know, throughout this past year. So many people have put out their reports about the ways that we know that the police don't keep us safe, right? And so yeah, I think that is also just really important for us to emphasize it in our own heads that they they literally are actively funding our unsafety. And I don't know, something about that infuriates me. And Governor Northam is almost out the door. What he could be
0: doing with his time is using that hand to write people out of their facilities, pardoning them, getting them out. Uhuru, Terrence, Farone, all of these stories that we have covered on this show. And beyond that, that he could be at his desk signing people's freedom. And instead, he's proposing millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to the very jails that the Omicron variant and COVID is going through. And honestly, it just sickens me and it just shows what we have left to do because it won't be Ralph that's going to do it.
1: All facts stated. Lastly, in local news, this past week, dozens of Richmond public school educators packed the auditorium at Martin Luther King Junior Middle School to fight for and win collective bargaining rights, becoming the first district in Virginia to do so. In an eight to one vote, the board formally recognized teachers' rights to negotiate contracts, ending a decades-long restriction. The resolution was introduced in October by school members Kenya Gibson of the 3rd District, Stephanie Rizzi of the 5th District, and Shonda harris Muhammad of the 6th District.
0: Go teachers! We see y'all! I know Richmond educators and educators all over Virginia have been watching this decision coming out of the school board, so excited for our educators to have more rights to fight for themselves. Well, y'all, we are moving on to national news and kicking it off with our final COVID watch of 2021. So last week, the latest variant of concern, the Omicron variant, was detected by scientists in South Africa. The scientists were able to rapidly detect and alert the world about their findings due to the investments that South Africa has made in genomic sequencing. But in response, the U.S., joined by Britain, the European Union, Australia, Thailand, and Sri Lanka, began to ban travelers from South Africa and nearby countries. Soon after the ban, it was revealed that the Omicron variant was already spreading in European countries before it was ever found in Africa. But what this situation brings up is the constant consequences of vaccine apartheid, where the U.S., Canada, U.K., and other countries can hoard the majority of the world's vaccines and withhold the recipe for the vaccine from other countries to have the ability to develop their own. And as rich countries continue to hoard the vaccines, variants continue to pop up. I mean, y'all, we are going through the Greek alphabet. The probate is about over at this point. Many people, particularly from the global South, have been warning of the dangers associated with delaying vaccine accessibility to the world's population since the beginning. So this is truly just more of the same. And meanwhile, Democracy Now! reports that shareholders of the vaccine manufacturing companies Pfizer and Moderna saw their profits rise by $10 billion just last week alone.
1: Not last week alone. Kalia,
0: you said last week alone? Uh Uh-huh. I saw something that was like, they're making thousands of dollars by the second.
3: Yeah, I mean- This is business as usual, you know, for the corporatists of the world. They've been doing this. I mean, like at the start of the pandemic, I feel like folks forget that a lot of the blame domestically was placed on African folks, you know, Black folks for the spread. And, you know, we have folks burning masks and now they're just taking it to an international level. So, yeah, it's business as usual. Well, moving into international news last week, the Biden administration announced that it will resume Trump's remain in Mexico policy. This comes after Republican lawmakers in Texas and Missouri filed a lawsuit against the White House after Biden allowed the policy to end back in June. According to the World Socialist website, following a ruling by the Supreme Court, the program restarted on Monday, expanding to include seven other border entry points, including San Diego, California, and the Texas cities of Laredo, El Paso, and Brownsville.
0: Just a hot mess. Honestly, it was already a mess with the way that they were like releasing asylum seekers. Um, I know folks have been doing mutual aid with people that are traveling throughout the country and even crossing through places like Virginia. It's just been very sporadic. They'll leave folks in Texas or anywhere along the path without any money, food, access to tickets or communication to their families, that's still happening. They've been deporting African migrants, Haitian migrants, and now we're returning to this extremely harmful policy. And so I'm just wondering how the 46 administration is not even worse in some ways than the 45 administration, because this is terrible.
3: Right. And this is just like, while they also are aware of how this is a very gendered issue, right? How this presents a problem for folks who are non-men who are more susceptible to sexual assault, ETC. So yeah, it's very like intentionally evil. And I think that that, yeah, kind of goes unsaid. It, it feels like, yeah, very intentionally violent and intersectionally violent.
0: And lest we not forget Kamala Harris saying months ago people in Guatemala and Central America to stay there and not come here. So it's not like, oh, the judge, you know, ruled this and it was out of the administration's control. It's still part of their policy plan and it falls into everything they're trying to do, which is completely contrary to their campaign promises and utilizing kids in cages as tokens, essentially, that were to be discarded as soon as it was not convenient for them anymore.
3: That is a great point. Well, moving into our last bit of international news. Back in October, the U.S. was found guilty on five counts of acts of genocide by an international tribunal put together by the spirit of Mandela. The International Tribunal on Human Rights Abuses Against Black, Brown, and Indigenous Peoples was held on October 23rd through the 25th in Washington Heights, New York City, aka Turtle Island, Lenape land. The tribunal was conducted in the spirit of the 1951 petition to the United Nations titled, We Charge Genocide, The Crime of Government Against the Negro People, which was signed by dozens of notables, including Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, Claudia Jones, Harry Haywood, and Paul Robeson. 30 witnesses gave testimony to a panel of nine jurists from across the globe. And so here is a direct judgment from the panel, quote, the 2021 indictment, is against the United States of America, represented by its president, Department of State, federal and state policing agencies, and other governmental institutions. Despite the need for further deliberation on the extensive submissions and documents from varied expert witnesses, a deep analysis from the jurist found that the process did sufficiently cover the scope and elements of all five counts in the indictment as having legal standing and hence legitimacy. After having heard the testimony of numerous victims of police racism, mass incarceration, environmental racism, public health inequities, and of political prisoners and prisoners of war, together with the expert testimonies and graphic presentations, as well as the copious documentation submitted and admitted on record, the panel of jurists find the U.S. and its subdivisions guilty of all five counts. We find grounds that acts of genocide have been committed, end quote. And so they are still doing further deliberations, but a full report of the jurist findings will be available soon. And that is available at thespiritofmandela.org.
1: Thank you for that, Nomi. I know just being able to hear that there is a body that is holding this institution really accountable and is speaking that and holding receipts. Honestly, I think it's important for all of us to hear to hear that, especially as we go through this refrain, that this is not the only people in power and that we do still have a power.
3: If folks are interested in really keeping up with this type of work, you know, this is a coalition that's been together since 2018. You can keep up with Spirit of Mandela. Uh, they're on Instagram, Twitter. They also are in connection with jailhouse lawyers speak. And one point I did want to make is that, you know, a lot of people are like, well, why would you petition the United Nations, right? We know that they are an illegitimate body in of themselves, right? But this is the way that we go to them, look at their law, right? And say, you say that you are here to protect those who don't have a voice, right? That's what the United Nations is for. They're supposed to look out for, you know, those who are being abused. And so it's, it's a way for us to legitimize ourselves. And it's been used. This has been a tactic that that's been used by revolutionaries like Amilcar Cabral, as they list Dr. W.E.B. Dubois. Like this is a, a practice, these tribunals has been a very revolutionary practice that has been tried over and over again and has really helped um, in terms of getting that international support that we need as a colonized nation, right? To be able to actually work towards our liberation, right? And we don't got no international support, then we really can't do nothing. And so I think that that, that really is the magnitude of this tribunal. And I really hope that people are able to keep engage engaged because we know that more reports will be coming out because there were 30 witnesses, right? And yeah, I, I think it's something that we shouldn't forget as we move into this new year, as discussions of 2020 begin to fade away. Really keep in mind that, you know, we still out here trying to le- legitimize our struggle.
0: And we're quite literally experiencing a genocide. Like, these receipts are so important. And it really does to me, bring the importance of truth-telling to the table and why what we do here at Rees Capital is so powerful and important to me. And I'm glad that we've gotten to do this for a year together of telling these stories, of having our reframe and telling the truth Because it's only through that that our stories will even be out there. And I'm glad that we're ending on this story. This is the final story that we'll tell in our reframe this year. That the U.S. has been found guilty on all five counts of acts of genocide. And today on our episode, we're going to talk to organizers right here in so-called Virginia who are building systems of care and resistance to this ongoing genocide. And so we'll talk to Yaya and Sarandon about their mutual aid projects in so-called Richmond and Charlottesville and hear about ways that we can also support the work that's happening here. So stay tuned. And we hope that we'll hear from y'all again in
1: 2022. It's okay, <laughs> Catch y'all next year.
2: The world won't get no better just let it be na, 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 The world won't get no better We gotta change again yeah. yeah.
3: yeah. Just you and me Change again, yeah. change again Just you and me Change again,
2: change again
0: Yaya and Sarandon, welcome back to the show. For our new listeners, can you both introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about what you do?
4: So I can go first. Yaya use they, them pronouns. I am a longtime volunteer and organizer with RBA, which is the local mutual aid collective in Richmond. We've been like operating in this particular COVID iteration since March of 2020. And yeah, I mean, I hold um, several different projects, the bottom line, some of the supply drive getting food and supplies and groceries to folks. Um, Also, along with some dear friends, Kalia included bottom line, the mini grants program that provides direct financial assistance to folks in and around the Richmond
2: area. Yeah, that's a little bit about me. I can go next. So um, my name is Sarandon, she, they pronouns. I'm a fourth year at the University of Virginia. Um, I am the co-chair of the Young Democratic Socialists of America's National Coordinating Committee. Um, I'm also the director of UVA's mutual aid um, project. And so, yeah, and so in the past year um, UVA mutual aid has done a lot of like uh, supplying monetary grants to students. Um, It really started in, I want to say like April and May 2020, um, when we saw kind of the very like immediate need to help students on grounds. because even though we go to kind of a wealthy university, they're not meeting our needs. Um, So that's what we're working on right now. And we hope to eventually open a free store at the university.
0: Ooh, It's given student power. We love to see it. And Yaya, you were also a part of VCU student power when you were a student, right?
4: Yeah, I was. Um, That's how I came up. Um, It taught me, I think so much about what I know about community organizing and what it means to actually like effectively build, like not just power, but like build relationships, you know, a lot of the relationships that I started to have and get to know when I was doing VCU student power I'm still really close friends with those folks you know and I yeah we've like been in the trenches with each other right so I mean there's something really special I think to be said about an organization that is like able to like pull people together in that way and also that you know regardless of whatever iteration that organization is in like the relationships like still sustain so yeah I mean I when I was like super duper tiny, small in college. Um, I was um, organizing against tuition rises and organizing for like students to be able to know what was going on. There was, you know, a level of opacity with Board of Visitors that I felt was unfair. And I still see that, you know, today, but I am also like really just so proud of the students now that I'm seeing and the work that I'm seeing that they're like trying to,
0: and they are succeeding in actually like holding university officials accountable. It's beautiful to see the, the power of how student organizing actually can intersect with mutual aid and so on and so forth, because the majority of our, our mini grants team, I think is student organizer alum. Speaking of Richmond Mutual Aid, Yaya, you were talking a little bit about the supply drive and the mini grants program that we have at the beginning of the pandemic. We talked about how things were really shaping up with Richmond Mutual Aid. So can you go in a little bit of depth about what has it been looking like? I know y'all have a transition that you're in. What's been going on? Yeah,
4: so VA has grown, I think, more than any of us ever could have anticipated. And it's been really beautiful in so many ways to like see community showing up in this way, both like in like donations of time and donations of like material goods and money as well. Matter is set up into several different components, right? The two main ones being Supply Drive and the Mini Grants program. There are also like other things that we have done and continue to do, like, you know, connecting folks directly with people in need of funds. We post stories every Friday. But we call them fundraiser Fridays where like people who like have an extra 5, 10, 15, however many dollars um, are able to donate that or redistribute that wealth to somebody who is in need. So that's like a separate component kind of within our like social media strategy that, you know, we try just to support people in, in whatever way we can. The other um, two main components being Supply Drive, which provides food, um, household cleaning supplies, baby items, books, toys, toiletries. We even have pet food. All of that is provided free of charge to folks um, that live in and around Richmond, so Richmond and surrounding counties. We were operating that out of a warehouse. Um, It was very much a delivery style model, um, meaning that there were folks that would come in and pack requests. We had folks calling a hotline and then we had hotline volunteers that would call folks back, take requests, and then from there um, would be sent to our warehouse where they would be packed and then we had folks that would volunteer to drive those um, requests to folks' houses. And we were operating like that, just chugging along really for almost, yeah, for almost two years at this point. Um, so we started with that delivery model due to the needs around COVID make it making more sense to deliver to folks than it would be for folks to like come to a centralized location because of exposure and all of that. We are in a transitionary period. Our lease is up. It was up in September. um, And it was also, I think, time for us to transition into a new model, um, one that, like, I think better reflects the needs of community that, like, we have been seeing through our conversations that we've been having with folks, right? So the goal of that being a community-free store where it is a very similar setup where we have a lot of the things that we were offering um, to folks as we were doing our delivery model, but just in a more centralized location that happening along with, you know, potential other resources that folks might need to connect them with different things that might be helpful that other organizations are offering. And just thinking about that as sort of the next iteration of the project Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how best to make that happen. So we're in very like we're in scheming dreaming mode right now when it comes to trying to figure out how to make this happen. I mean, I think we're so excited and we've only gotten positive feedback from community about it. So that is the supply drive and mini grants uh, program is our baby, right? Um, our baby. <laughs> it is our direct financial assistance program that provides one-time grants of up to $200 to folks that are most marginalized and in community that need it. We have been operating this program since April of 2020 and At this point, um, have redistributed over $250,000 in direct financial assistance to well over a thousand people and families, which is really amazing. It is a self-sustaining program, um, which means that we have a monthly set of donations that come in. We're really lucky to have people consistently supporting us and supporting, honestly, you know, community and their neighbors, right, in this way and that we use every month to open up the form. And it has been, I think I have learned so much, right? From having like been engaged with this project. I think that, I think that people really tend towards mutual aid in times of crisis. And what I'm really interested in what I'm most excited about is what does it look like for us to really lean into mutual aid frameworks even when there isn't a crisis, right? What does it look like for us to engage in like these practices when it is not the 11th hour? What things can we imagine with each other when we are supporting people more consistently? So I think that Mutual Aid Matter VA has been a beautiful like way for me to practice that, right? And to try and figure out what that world could look like.
0: I think that is beautiful and what it looks like to actually start to address things before they become crises as a community starting to address things just sooner and we've talked a lot on our show about the cycles of movements and how there are these high times right where we're all out we're in the streets we're out doing things and then there are these times we're in now where it's kind of like a time where we need to be arming ourselves with knowledge, with resources, with the skills, and scaling up our capacity and scaling up our capacity. And so I think that's such an important point that you raise, Yaya, about even doing that with our systems of care as well. Definitely, definitely. So, so, Randon, let's pull you into this. You're in Charlottesville And we know in Charlottesville, y'all have a wonderful flourishing community of mutual aid, both on campus and off campus. Would you mind telling us a little bit about how mutual aid is looking on grounds at UVA
2: with UVA mutual aid? Yeah, so I can like kind of start with a little bit about like the history and background of like kind of when I think UVA students saw that it was really, really necessary to have mutual aid. And in March of 2020, um, we were all like basically forced to go home. And of course, when you have students from across the country and across the globe that are forced to, like, go home, pack up their stuff very quickly, when when students are being laid off from their jobs, like, I lost my job right in the beginning of the pandemic. I was a waitress. Like, there's suddenly just this, like, massive, like, need for mutual aid and trying to help students have, like very basic needs. Um, and it's unfortunate because the university does have about $3 billion in unrestricted endowment funds. Again, they weren't meeting um, the needs of all students, which was really unfortunate. So that's again, how UVA Mutual Aids got started. At the beginning of the project, we were supplying $100 grants to students. Um, we we're doing like cycles, like we would raise $5,000 and then open up like the applications for grants, and again, it was like no strings attached. Anyone could do it. So yeah, that's basically what kind of UVM shade looks like a bit um, at its beginning. And one thing that also kind of came about during the pandemic is that the University of Virginia allowed in-person rushing events to happen for frats and sororities. So, and I think this was fast forward to February 2021, there was a massive spike in COVID cases at the university. And so what YDSA at UVA did, we raised money and we ended up doing care package deliveries to students in quarantine because, like, there's a lot of reports about how, like, in quarantine housing that students were, like, having issues getting, like, Food and water, like very basic things. So, we would deliver care packages to students. I believe we delivered somewhere between 100 packages around that. So, yeah. And then we would also do like kind of mutual aid tabling around grounds. So, we would just like come with a bunch of supplies, get a table, and just like hang out around like central grounds or around dorms, especially for the first years. Because, again, like first years, especially like don't have like didn't have cars at the time and stuff like that. I also want to talk a little bit about. There's a lot of other organizations that have really been just, like, great and quick to also do mutual aid, like, and request needs for people um, in the Charlottesville community. Like, currently, our Afghan Student Alliance is raising, I believe that they're actually collecting goods and products for Afghan refugees that are in Charlottesville, and there's been a couple other organizations around Grounds that have been able to kind of you know, quickly put together funds and materials to redistribute to people in the Charlottesville community. I'm kind of looking ahead. Um, Again, UVA Mutually, we want to open a free store. um, And I'm really, really excited about that. We're doing fundraising for that right now. And we're a little far from our goal, but that's okay. We'll get there. And we're also planning on opening our cycle for, or like the grant application for cycle for um, people to, you know, request funds. Also, one big thing that I'm I'm really excited about for mutual aid this year is that I'm hoping to kind of shift the culture of mutual aid. I think beforehand, again, before I was director, it was a little bit more of a charity based. Um, And again, that's not what mutual aid is, right? Like it's not charity. It's not solidarity. Um, And I'm hoping to like put on like political education events and things like that. It's like why mutual aid is important. Like, again, like it's a tool that we use to organize the like systems that have made mutual aid necessary, so again we're hoping to do like political education pamphlets stuff like that, so people know like again this isn't it's never been about charity it's again about organizing and solidarity
0: mm-hmm. such a great point, Sarandon, and thank you for sharing because we know with the covid pandemic and we've had uh, episodes about this where you all as student activists really spoke out during that time because you saw the cracks of the university getting even larger as they continue to hoard their wealth, as Ibi, Ibi likes to say from UVA. She says, you know, they, UVA is very good at hoarding their wealth. Um, and so the question I have about UVA in particular with their billions of dollars and endowment like you were talking about. And so how is it that basic needs aren't being met? Where, where is the money going?
2: Um, so, yeah, it, it's really unfortunate that this is kind of the situation that we found ourselves in. I frankly cannot really tell you where the money is going. But again, I think that a lot of it goes to things that make UVA look good, right? Like, so things like the new data science school that they're pouring, like, I think, like millions of dollars into. You know, I think it's that. I think it's sports and athletics because that brings in a lot of money, right? Um, like that was a lot of people were very confused during the pandemic. So why? UVA was still like playing football and again that's like what UVA cares about is kind of what it looks like on the outside to like donors and alums rather than actually like caring about students and being like okay why are students having these issues like how do we help them how do we you know take care of our community so again I I it it blows my mind frankly it is, I think, I hate to use this word, but I think that it's criminal. I think that the university, again, just really cares about what it looks like on the outside. And they want to make sure that, again, they're constantly in the top, like, I think, like, recently, like, it entered, like, the top 25 universities. Again, like, that's the things that UVA cares about, not necessarily students and workers, especially, like, the working class students at UVA. Mm. Tell it. Truly, speaking
0: the truth, I come from George Mason University, which touts its R1 status as a research university while we were, you know, scraping by to make our tuition payments. And so it really does speak to the priority of these institutions and where they're giving their money and even the transparency that you all don't know. And uh, it sounds really familiar, right, as we're watching Howard University and the students literally outside occupying space during the Blackburn takeover, how their university is invested in their image. And then we look at historically white universities with billions of dollars in endowments and it's the same tools uh, and tactics that they're using. And they have a lot of the same priorities as well. So just bringing that up as we're watching students resist on campuses all over the place and yeah, yeah, we're going to bring you back in. So Richmond has gotten millions upon millions from this American rescues plan funding. And of course, our city council has been going back and forth, as well as our state legislators about where the money is going. But I mean, if we're being real about it, we got CARES Act funding. You know, there was there's been a lot of federal stimulus funding that mm-hmm. was intended to go to stuff that you would think would be like this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um But why do you feel that there are so many gaps still when it comes to the actual material resources?
4: Oh, goodness. What a good question. I think that it ultimately, for me, comes down to priorities. I think that, or I know for a fact that Richmond Mutual Aid is a collective of people that is committed to supporting our neighbors, understanding the concepts and frameworks of like solidarity, not charity, meaning that our liberation, right, is intertwined with each other. When we are supporting each other, like we are also doing the work of building a world that can support all of us. And that is the basis through which we do this work historically, the city of Richmond, the government, they make decisions that are based in profit. They make decisions that are based in what is the most capitalist gain. And those decisions almost always ensure that funding, whether or not its intended purpose was to support people, quote unquote, it will almost always end up in the hands of whatever scheme will be making the most money and I've seen it time and time again just historically like very nonsensical very expensive very at the end of the day detrimental (laughs) decisions being made and so I think that though there are millions there has been no concerted effort truly at least that I know of other than Richmond Mutual Aid to try and support folks that are marginalized with the programs that we're trying to implement, the programs that we're trying to run, right? I remember we had opened our mini grants application for our next monthly cycle. And in two days, in 48 hours since it had been opened, we got almost 250 applications in two days. We can only take at our maximum, a hundred applications. And so it just, for me, like, you know, and Kalia, I think you can absolutely speak to this as well because, you know, we were both like, so so furious that you know and sad quite frankly right that it was so dire for folks you know as unemployment is ending as more people are like finding it more and more difficult to secure gainful employment you know as the pandemic is still very much not over a lot of people having to make a lot of really difficult decisions where they shouldn't need to because it isn't like the money isn't there. It is that the money is intentionally being put in places where it isn't going to help people, where it's only going to continue to subjugate people, right? And so we at Matter VA are trying really, really hard to figure out how we can provide institutional level support or support to people that should be ideally coming from institutions, but it's not with our resources which are honestly, as grateful as I am, I will always be so, you know, eternally thankful for the way that folks show up and redistribute their wealth and how, you know, like the conversations that I've been able to have with people about the importance of wealth redistribution and the importance of, you know, mutual aid, as amazing as that is, like, we are not the government. (laughs) Um, And yet it just time and time again, like, you know, mutual aid, gets the goods right mutual aid is the thing that is like supporting people and surviving like mutual aid is the thing that is supporting people and not falling into crisis and so in terms of like where the money is going I have no idea probably to the police honestly um probably to you know the next big development but it's definitely not going to the people and I think that there are going to continue to be gaps because of where the priorities are, right? And so as we're trying to figure out, you know, what things are going to need to look like for survival, just like be asking those questions, right? Like, where are the priorities of this? What are the values? Um, What is the foundation made
0: of? So. Yes. Yes, and it's true that I think we've definitely seen an increase in people applying or putting in applications for the the grants. Um, and at one point, I think I remember the city even putting mutual aid as a resource on their own yes. literature. Yes, they did. They did. They
4: put they put us as a as a resource on one of their like emergency pages. It. <laughs> I thought that that was, I'm, I'm always very happy to, like, alert people that we exist. It is always frustrating being co-opted, right, by an entity that has done absolutely nothing. Uh, all of the, all of everything that Richmond Mutual Aid has been able to accomplish is because of community, every dollar every can every box of pasta is because of community and so as ego in in my ego it's flattering and then in
0: my like self actually it is (laughs) extremely frustrating right yeah and i know at the university level it certainly happens to Um, It happened while I was in college at Mason when we had our pantry. And next thing we know, that was on pamphlets for the university. Like, oh, our students take care of each other. But why are the students hungry? Thank you all so much for talking about the status at hand. I'm hearing a lot of wealth hoarding and money mismanagement. And not in the sense of like, we don't know how to use and manage our money, but in the sense that like we're intentionally putting it uh, in places that we want it to go. Right, Um, And so we're turning page here. Y'all both have talked about this free store model that your organizations are shifting to. For our listeners who are new to mutual aid and the different types of projects, can y'all just talk a little bit more about this concept and what it looks like? Yeah, totally.
4: I think that well, I want to first start with, you know, understanding that Food insecurity is something that has existed um, long before the pandemic. Um, I think that the pandemic exacerbated issues that were already present in certain communities surrounding folks' ability to get access to nutrient-dense and or consistent food, right? So wanting to say that, the biggest barrier to that in a lot of ways being cost Prohibited, like it is cost prohibitive. Sometimes, like making, you know, food choices is really difficult. I know in Richmond there are certain areas that like do not have adequate grocery stores or adequate access to like food in general. There are a lot of convenience stores, there are a lot of corner stores and all of those things, but like there aren't any grocery stores. So When we started doing the supply drive here in Richmond, um, we were coming at it understanding that folks were, you know, losing their jobs, needing food, obviously, um, so that they could like continue to like survive and figure out how to continue to live. Again, as we have gotten like sort of deeper into this project, recognizing that the problem had already existed and was just laid bare, by the pandemic, also holding that our offerings in our food and cleaning kits that we would give to folks through delivery were expanding, right? So we started with like a very like base level Types of things that you would generally see, and then we started adding dairy. We started adding toiletries. We started adding raw and deli meat. Um, we started adding a lot of fresh produce. Um, having really amazing farm partners, luckily that we're continuing to like build and steward relationships with, and knowing that we were operating at scale in Supply Drive, being able to like offer these things. My thought process for really wanting to like push a free store forward is there are a couple of reasons. Number one, people still need access to food. (laughs) That has not changed or shifted. It has actually, you know, become even more pertinent to me as we are currently taking our pause and trying to fundraise and trying to make this the, you know, absolute most sustainable project that it can be, that there is still high need. And so that number one is a reason why I feel really excited about a free store. Number two, um, having an, a, a place where that is in a centralized location that people can come to and actually be able to like make choices about what food they're eating without needing to worry about how they're going to pay for it. I think that our ability to be able to provide these things free of cost is something that is very important, necessary, and Possible, right? And so, really excited to see the free store project come to life. It is exactly what it sounds like. It is a a community-run store that provides free food, free groceries, and supplies to people that need it. No questions asked. Very low barrier, and you do not have to pay for anything. (laughs) Everything is free, and I, I mean. I think it's a really beautiful model for how things could be at its base. Everything that will be in the free store will be free. And yeah, hopefully, you know, I mean, I'm envisioning people being able to come in, grab what they need, leave things if they have them and have it be like a very reciprocal community centered project that Richmond, I think, desperately needs.
0: So, yes concerned and do you have anything to add about how the free store will look in the university context
2: yeah so I guess to begin with Charlottesville is a really expensive city and it's really hard to be like a student one thing that I've noticed it's like hard to at UVA it's hard to prioritize like yourself and like your well-being um so again like it's really, really important to us at UVA Mutual Aid to put like, there are people here to support you. And there's, this is a hard, this is going to be hard, like four years, but again, there's people here to support you. Also, one thing that I'm really excited about is that it's going to be open to and advertise to like everyone at UVA, like students, workers, faculty. There's been kind of this, like, I think that again, a lot of Our struggles as students are really tied into, like, worker struggles, and um, it's really, really important to us that, like, again, like, we're all kind of trying to organize against the university and administrators or admin, and so, yeah, that's basically how it would look, and again, it would be open, like, products. Um, We're actually hoping to get, like, we're trying to, like, find like, vending machines, (laughs) cheap vending machines, and put healthcare products in them, plan B, condoms, menstrual products, stuff like that. So yeah, that's a little bit of how it would look. And again, it's just, it's just so expensive to be a student at UVA that we just kind of realized like even doing like the grants is simply not enough, unfortunately. And we need to be able to like give supplies to not only students, but workers at the university, so.
0: Yes, I love this. I wish that it was something that was possible when I was a student because like being a Black first-generation student, survival programs like this can really be The difference between whether you stay in school or not, and for all the workers that continue to allow the university community to flourish and exist, I think it's really incredibly important. And so both of y'all have been describing what seems to be a mutual aid ecosystem within your communities. Sarandon, you were talking a bit about the different organizations and groups that have been working together to meet the needs And so I just wanted to open this conversation about the necessity to build an ecosystem of mutual aid. And of course, if there are any other groups that you want to shout out for people to check out, but just wondering your thoughts about this.
2: Yeah, I think that this is just like movement building in general. Like it can't be just like one person or like one group. It has to be like, literally, like it has to be an ecosystem where we're questioning institutions and, you know, our cities and locals that we're part of and being like, why are these needs being met? And how do we organize and how do we, as a group? And again, I think that that's really, really important that we, that it's not, again, just like one group doing this. It it definitely has to be like a group effort. It has to be like, when we say like community care, like we literally mean it. Um, It literally has to be a community of people because otherwise it's just, it's just not going to be sustainable if we're not all like asking these questions and, you know, participating in mutual aid
4: yes i love the term ecosystem Your biomimicry is like near and dear to my heart um i you know i love thinking about things in those terms i feel like that it it's important to be talking about it in terms of like building an ecosystem for a lot of reasons right Richmond mutual aid cannot be all do all Um, do everything, right? Um, It is unrealistic to have that expectation of any collective. And I get so excited when I hear about other collectives, other groups of people that are, you know, doing work that we are able to work with. And figure out how we can best support each other. And I think that that is so beautiful because, like, it means that there are, you know, so many people that are really, really excited about the work and are engaging in the work. And, you know, in those conversations, I always find that there is such a level of like generative thought. Um, Everybody is so smart and so sharp and (laughs) have incredible, incredible ideas. I think that I've been like really lucky again to be able to see and work with rva community fridges for example um that is a beautiful project um and i'm so so excited that it exists in richmond you know um it is doing like very similar things to richmond mutual aid but in the uh, in such an incredible way i just i stand that project so hard river city harm redux um is also supporting folks every single week doing distro days and doing their own special events and we support them as well. Jackson Ward Youth Peace Team, incredible sharp group of folks that are supporting their neighbors. Yeah I mean I think that it's really important for a lot of reasons because the institutions and powers that be that expect there to be silos, expect there to be like groupings of people that aren't talking to each other knowing that that divide and conquer, you know, mentality really does work, right? When applied to certain things, right? It's easy to conceptualize what it would look like to squash an effort when it is just one group. Not so much when it's several groups, right? Not so much when it is like several people that have a collective understanding of what's going on and have conversations with each other about like how they can in their own individual ways be poking holes into the systems and structures that are actively trying to like kill and maim, right? And so I think that when we're talking about what it looks like to build an ecosystem, it is like, I mean, it is visionary to the 10th degree. And I mean, I'm seeing it in Richmond in a way. I've been in Richmond for a while now and I'm seeing it in Richmond in like a really beautiful and powerful way. And I'm so excited to see
0: what we can like accomplish with each other. Ooh, that was a word. Visionary. Yes. And it's so beautiful to hear of how we're all working together. And especially with Richmond and Charlottesville in some respects being sibling cities. I know that a lot of times we've leaned on Charlottesville with there are many grants programs to help. They helped us seed ours. And there's been many times where we've just learned from each other. And so it's so beautiful to see not only just regionally or locally how our projects impact one another, but when we really span out and the beauty of that. So before we wrap up, I can't let y'all get out of here without asking, what is your favorite part of what you do? And what is one of the most challenging parts?
4: Oh, so I would say my, my favorite part has definitely been building relationships. I have just, I mean, grown in to really deep um relationship with folks. There was always like a level of like warmth and excitement going into the warehouse on a day when it was really hopping. And you'd just like see folks, you know, doing their own things. And when we were really going, like, it was beautiful to see so many people coming out and supporting and getting groceries and supplies to people and yeah i think that that relationship building aspect of it has been formative in like my continuance right in like doing mutual aid yeah i mean i'm just so grateful folks really Really stellar. And like the most challenging part, there are a lot of things that are like challenging. I think that for me, I am always trying to challenge the notion of this being like just another nonprofit, another charity type situation, right? It is always like, how is this different than a charity? Or what are we doing, you know, that's like making this like mutual aid? Or how are we like conceptualizing power and like being really honest, right? About what that looks like within collectives. How are we collaborating with each other? How are we engaging with community? How are we asking the really difficult questions? It is challenging because it, it it's going against the ingrained things, right? That like we have been taught. And it, it is essentially a learn and unlearning and relearning process one that I am you know more than grateful to be able to be going through but you know it does it does require some uh self-critique it does require some self-assessment it does require you know feedback it requires you know all of those things that like necessitate you to look inward and then also challenge folks um, to do the same
0: and that's hard sometimes right like it's not easy yeah. y'all can't see us but we all black on this call so um, <laughs> I think yeah I'm, I'm hearing you Yaya and then yes. I'm hearing you you know um, so thank you thank you for sharing
2: that Ms. Miranda what's your favorite part God, I feel like I'm gonna get emotional. I have really, really just enjoyed watching like people immunity kind of because like so it's kind of a new cohort of students this year and being able just to talk to them and like ask them lots of questions and like seeing them kind of grow as organizers, just really, really exciting. My whole thing is I'm very based like okay, like how do how do I like, be a good almost like mentor? Like how do I how do I like prepare because like the thing is like and I think we touched on this earlier, the thing about universities and colleges as admin literally they're just like oh okay these people are going to be here four years and then that's it they like they're expecting turnover like they're expecting us not to keep institutional knowledge and keep forward with these projects. So like one thing that I'm really big on, I'm just like, oh my God, like how do I, how do I get like more first and second years to come into this project? And how do I get them to, you know, be organizers in the space. So this has been really, really exciting to see, especially like first and second years be excited about this, excited about this work, growing as organizers. That's probably been my favorite thing. Just like being in community with people is I think always a beautiful thing. And it's really hard, I think, to find at UVA sometimes, frankly. So that's definitely been my favorite part most challenging part, I think that at a university like UVA, that's I think something crazy, like 60% of our, of the students that go to UVA are like in the top 20 or 10%. It's been really challenging to try to like, like this isn't great organ, I guess like a great kind of organizing space in general, if that makes sense. Like it's not like, I think that sometimes people don't see the need from each plate and they're like, oh, well like why do we need mutual aid? I'm like, let me tell you. Just trying to like explain that to people that just sometimes don't get it is a little hard. Um, And also I think that a lot of people at UVA have started to kind of go back to normal, whatever that means. And I think that a lot of students just don't see why this always is going to be necessary until we like dismantle capitalism. And so it's, so I think that's been challenging to try to, like, even soliciting, like, donations from students is sometimes a little tricky, because I think that sometimes people don't see the need for mutual aid, because it doesn't, like, affect them directly. So that's probably been, like, the most challenging part, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. I totally feel that, because I feel like we've had to, Yaya with Matt, R V A kind of talk about that openly, of why mm-hmm. it's a consistent need, because I think when these big crises happen. Folks are like, where's the mutual aid? Where's the bail fund? Who am I donating to? And there's influxes and then realizing, and we know this, right? we've known this, that it's a consistent need. And so being able to build on that momentum and engage those folks over the long haul so that, you know, if they're Patreon subscribers for a couple months to your, your mutual aid Patreon or however you're soliciting your donations It doesn't fall off once it leaves the news cycle. And so that's where the political education comes in. And I appreciate y'all lifting that as part of what your project's doing. And last but not least, we got folks listening to the show that are probably very excited about what they're hearing with mutual aid in Richmond and Charlottesville. And they are probably wondering how they can get involved. So how can folks follow you, support, or get involved with the work that you're doing?
4: You can follow us at mad_rva. underscore RDA. Look out for some really exciting announcements coming up from us about what further engagement is going to look like. We have a fundraising goal of $30,000 right now to be able to open up the free store in Richmond and just try to continue to get food and supplies to folks. So any amount of donations would be helpful towards that right now. And as we are transitioning into a new space, we'll be looking for um, different help in that way, moving, stocking, all of that fun stuff in the future though. But follow us on Instagram to get involved and such.
2: Yeah. um, If people are interested and, you know, first of all, participating in Mutual Aid at UVA, you can email us at UVAMutualAid5 at gmail.com. And also to donate, Cash App and our Venmo are both at UVAMutualAid5. And that is also our Twitter and Instagram at aid. Yeah, those are great. Again, we have a goal for our free store of $5,000. We are pretty short of that currently. So if people could donate to um, the GoFundMe link, which is like on our social medias, that would be amazing. And again, if people want to get more involved, just email us.
0: Wonderful. We'll be sure to link all of that in the show notes. Mini grants are still being distributed, um, even
4: though uh, Supply Drive is currently on pause. A link to our mini grants application is available in our milkshake, um, which is the link tree in our Instagram bio. You can also email us at um, Richmond Mutual Aid at ProtonMail.com. For more information about that, thank you.
0: Yeah, so thank you all so much for coming on and talking about the incredible work that you're engaged in. If you're listening, definitely follow these folks, support the work they're doing, and engage in the practice of mutual aid in your own communities and your own families and units, right? It starts from the relationships that we have. And I am just so honored to be in a relationship with both of you and community with both of you. You see And that is all for Race Capital today. Thank you to everyone who has listened to our show in 2021, to all of our guests who have joined to share their stories this year, and to our generous Patreons and monthly sustainers. This is Kalia Harris saying thank you again, and we'll catch you later.